The issue that he brought up for us, I thought would be neat to start with this morning, is we were looking at the seal, uh, which is the... I'm sorry, we were looking at the, six, the fifth seal, the, al- the altar, where there's uh, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God. And then we were, because we were talking about the 144,000, and what we, at least what I proposed last week, is that we don't need to understand it to be literal, a number that is, is exact, 144,000, period. But that this, along with the tribes and along with the sealing, those were all images or ideas that, that conveyed um, something else. So the sealing was protection, God preserving those who are his, knowing exactly whose are his, and that the precision of the number had to do with the completeness of every single person who, are, who is his, as well as uh, he knows exactly down to, the, down to the detail. So what we are proposing, what I'm proposing is that that number is not meant to be taken as a literal number of, of individuals, of Jewish individuals at that, but they represent God's people as a whole, every single one of them, and God's intimate knowledge of them, and his protection over them. So, but that did raise a question, right? Because we are, how, how do we, and the question is, how do we in, interpret the symbols that we see? Because we're going to see even a lot more of them. So I thought, let's, let's just re-explain that for a second, because... This is a difficulty with this book. It is challenging with all the symbols and ideas. And then uh, the real challenge of Revelation is that he doesn't tell us what all the symbols mean. Some places he does, right? He says the seven lampstands, oh, these are the seven churches. They, or at least they represent the seven churches in the vision. So it's not, it's not like he leaves us totally in the dark. But then there are other things that he does not mention to us, like what they mean. And so what do we do with those? So the... What makes Revelation so difficult is that not even in the book do we have an explanation for some of the images, is that we have to look to the rest of the Bible to, to find them. And there are, they are scattered throughout there, but they're not, they're not all in one place. It's not like, oh, the book of uh, images, and you go there and you can, you know, like a dictionary, and oh, l- let's look up this image and then we can find the meaning. It requires you to go searching uh, or become familiar or read. And then even the use of the images, what John is doing in the book of Revelation, he's, he's kind of painting a new picture for us to consider. So when he talks about Jesus in chapter 1, if you remember, Jesus is portrayed as eyes of fire, hair white as wool, a sash around him. He's using images from God, and he's using images of the high priest, and he's painting a new picture of Jesus. So that's a challenge in and of itself. right? You're pulling from different places to paint a new picture of Jesus for us. So that we can't underestimate how difficult that is and the challenge that presents to us as we try to wrestle with the ideas. It's not going to be easy, number one. And then so we shouldn't hold too tightly to whatever we do conclude as you go, okay, that makes sense. And then so what do you do with that? You start with, does this make sense right here? So if we have a whatever seal or whatever image that we're looking at, we try to ask ourselves, does that make sense of right in the immediate context? Does, does the idea of what we're proposing of 144,000, does that make sense right there in chapter 7? That would be one question that we would want to check. And then we go, yeah, actually various possible meetings make sense in, in the passage itself. It doesn't tell us whether it's literal or not. So either way, that's not very helpful. Then we go to the broader context right around it. Does that make sense within the chapters and the book? So that one requires us to read the whole book. And then the last check box is, does the rest of the Bible kind of help us to understand this image as well? This idea, does it, does it all jive and work together? And so that's very hard. And so when we're, I just wanted to say that when we're here talking and I'm proposing ideas or someone makes a comment and then we, I go off a little bit and we look at different passages, I don't want you to get the impression that, oh, maybe I should have known that. Because it's a lot. So for some of this material, not only did I go to school and study it, but then I took time in my life to study it, at least 15 years. And I still don't feel very, you know, confident and sure in it. And for some of, for some of you, it's going to be the first time hearing certain ideas or reading this book this in depth, that it's going to feel like, oh my gosh, I know nothing. And uh, you, you should just ignore the feeling and just realize that you're, you are learning lots of stuff at once and you just keep rereading it. 
So if, if you can remember that Revelation has 22 chapters, that's a real big plus. I'm telling you, many people talk about Revelation and they don't know how many chapters are in it. Right? If you can remember that the book starts with, let's say the first three chapters, what's kind of the beginning of the letter? I think you guys would know this by now. The, the first section here has, has what? Yeah, if you, can, if you know that already, like, that's a huge plus that you remember. That Revelation is a letter and it begins with these seven churches, these seven letters or seven messages to these different churches. That's big. And then comes the throne room. If you can remember how big and important that is, I'm telling you, a lot of people know a lot about Revelation, but they, they don't know what's in it and then the order of it, because that's really significant, right? Because when we realize the throne room is big, especially, here's the throne room in chapters 4 and 5, but the big, thick part of the message of the book, the visions, the seal, the trumpets, the bowls, and then a host of other things, they all have this in mind in the background. We'll, we'll, see, we'll see some more of that today where it just gets mentioned everywhere and you realize, oh my gosh, the, the whole vision is, is happening at the throne room. John isn't going to the future. He's not being transported to a different dimension. He's in the throne room and he's, and he's getting these, maybe it's a big TV screen, whatever it is, he's, he's seeing these things or at least he's describing it that way. Right? And you're like, the whole, it always comes back to at the throne room, at the throne room. So the dragons, the beasts, the chaos, it all has this being granted, being given. And John sees the lamb over here, and then he sees the chaos over here. It's, that's the perspective of the book. So that, that's a very general thing that if you can hold on to that in your brain and, and come out of our time, oh, okay, that's, that's a big deal. That's going to set you up really well to not, not get too lost in the details of, uh, of everything else. All right, so that was that was just kind of my little. Um, I just wanted to do a little bit of that as we, as we get started, um, to discuss between the sixth and the seventh seal, have these two visions of these two groups of people, and that's where we started. Uh, ended last time, 144,000 representing God's people, and then there's another group right after it, which is an uncountable multitude. And my point was. These are side by side, not by coincidence, not by accident. And I'm proposing that they actually describe the same group of people, just in different, different concepts, different ideas about them. That's how images and ideas work. They tell us different things about. So the same way that Jesus is in chapter 1 described one way, he shows up in chapter 19 a different way. And he shows up in chapters 4 and 5 in a different way. He is still called the lamb later in the book, but he's not, he's not like a slain lamb who looks like it's dead, but it's standing He's a mighty warrior in chapter 19. And in chapters 20 and 22, he's there guiding us into the fountain of living waters, and he's ruling over the nations. And in chapter 1, he's more like a priest who's taking care of lamps. They're all the same person describing different characteristics of him. So I suggest that this description is the same thing of these two people groups in chapter 7 of Revelation. We have the four horsemen who are these judgments on the earth. And then uh, there's kind of a question mark in the altar, which is, God, all this stuff is happening on earth, and it looks like your people are, you know, being mistreated. They're being abused. They're being killed. When are you going to do something about it? We are waiting for you. And then God says, well, until, it, until it's time. And I've, got, I've got my alarm set, and there's, there's more to die. I have a plan for them. I have a purpose. He's in control. And then chapter uh, seal number six, that really sounds like the end. The day of the wrath of the Lamb and of God have come upon the kings of the earth. And so this whole thing here, 1 through 6, it really seems to describe human history from God unleashing his judgments when the, when the Lamb is exalted. So that's the ascension of Jesus and taking the right place before the Father. And since that time, God has been exercising his, his rule through the four judgments, the four horsemen. Or basically, he's controlling death. He's controlling the sword, so violence on the earth. He's controlling natural disasters and famine. God said, this is all mine. And now they are all working for me to bring about my kingdom, the Lamb's kingdom. And I'm also having my people suffering and dying at the same time. That's part of my plan. And so the question here that is raised is, well, when are you going to do something? Well, then, in 6, well, at the end of time, I will bring judgment. But meanwhile, we have these visions that, kind of, that remind us that God's people are never left abandoned even if they are suffering, they're never forgotten. He has a name on each single one, right? And he has them numbered because it tells the precision and care that God has for each 
individual. So I, I wanted to rehearse again 144,000, just their details, and the concept that the multitude, I think, is the same group, but it's giving us a different truth about God's people, which is very important for us to hold on to as we go through our life and as the church goes through its life. Is the difference, is the difference in the numbers because the first 144 was really Jews? Am I right there? And the rest of it then is us, Gentiles in the world? That, or am I putting something there that shouldn't be? That, that could be a possibility, Claude. If, um, if we look at 144,000 as Jews, that, that could be, some, a lot of people think that way, that this is a description literally of, of every tribe. I don't know if you remember our conversation from last week. One thing that was noted is that there's, there's some tribes missing. And there's an extra one that doesn't really exist, which is the tribe of Joseph. He doesn't have a tribe. There are no people from that exact distinct lineage except for his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so my proposal was that the use of the tribe language, the 12, is another way of describing God's people in general. All of God's people. So I don't think the idea was meant to say, hey, uh, the bloodline of, of, of Jacob, th these are, th because then I think that would force us to go, well, if, if these tribes are literal tribes, then we should, the numbers, I think it would be difficult to, to say the numbers aren't specific, but the tribe is. So to kind of keep it all in a consistent principle that we're applying. I guess the only reason I'm saying that is because in verse 9, then the first two word, first couple words are, after this. Uh-huh. And that's why I'm asking what I'm asking. After this, that, um, that could be simply saying, after I saw the sixth seal, then I saw another vision. We're going to have this phrase is going to show up quite a bit in the book. Um, so, chapter 4 has the same after this. So, chapter 4, verse 1, after the letters that he, wrote, that he writes, he goes, Okay, now after this, this is what I saw next. Uh, then you're going to have like this similar kind of, I saw this and then I saw this. So, both in chapter 7, verse 1, you have after this. Then in verse 9, you have after this. You're going to see, there's a couple of other places where that exact phrase. There might be another time or two, chapter 15, verse 5, that's another after this, but even more frequently is, and then I saw, and then I looked. So that's kind of the sequence of the visions in the book. There are lots of different visions that, that mark, that tells us, okay, we're, we're changing, we're going to another section of, of the vision that he's, that he's giving us. So it's a, it's a marker, and how much weight we want to give to that would we have to just decide, you know, as you're going through the book, does this mean, what kind of shift is it? So, I don't know if that answers the question very well or not, but there are a couple of times for that. The, um, yeah, so the question of why, why the, the Jewish name, that's another thing that brings in the rest of the Bible, right? If we are looking at God's people as um, the continuation of the Jewish people, Jewish people being the covenant people, not so much bloodline, then I think we would look to like Ephesians, where the, the group of people, those who are Gentiles and those who are ethnic Jews, they merge into one man, the new man that Christ made, and that is the people of God, the covenant people of God. And this would, this would be a way of describing that. These are the covenant people of God, those who follow the Lamb, in contrast to those who are simply Jews. The reason you bring that up is because in that other perspective that we talked about with uh, viewing Revelation as a future book, within that line of thinking, they take a lot of things at face value in Revelation. They do, including this chapter, and they, it's not up here anymore, but what, what they are saying is that this is describing a specific number of Jews who God will protect and whom eventually will come to know him. And so they believe that at a future date, uh, which is what Revelation describes in the future, after Jesus has come and taken the church away from the earth, that the group that remains, there'll be a bunch of people, and among those people, God will protect 144,000 ethnic Jews who will be preserved from, uh, from a lot of stuff, and then they will eventually come to know him and follow him and be lamb followers. So that, there is a, that's a very popular understanding of that. So that might be a little bit in your mind. So that, that, that is very commonly taught. So I'm proposing an, an alternative, that this is a group of the people, and we'll see if it makes sense uh, 
or not. Let's look at that exactly. How is the group described? I think that, that might be helpful to answer your question or for us to think about. And I think some of you might also have some similar questions or thought about, thoughts about who is the group. So we didn't do this as much last time. Let's look at the detail of chapter 7 then of, of who these people are because this isn't the only place they're described in the book. All right, so uh, verse 2 of chapter 7. Let's, let's do that. I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God, and he call, called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given the power to harm earth and sea, saying, Don't harm the earth, the sea, or the creatures, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their forehead. And that already might be a, a, an interesting hint. The servants of Yahweh in Revelation are his followers. It's chapters 1 through 3. The servants of God are those who hold to the word of God, testify to the gospel. It's what the church is doing throughout Revelation. That's an interesting little title, the servants of God. It's already a hint uh, of who this group is. So they, they are sealed here, right, in verse 4, sealed from every tribe. We're not told what the seal looks like in this chapter, but jump to chapter 14. We're actually given a little bit more detail about what exactly is happening with, with this seal. So if you're there in chapter 14, it says, And then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So now, this is a detail that seems to be like the, the seal of the 144,000 is the name of God um, and the name of the Lamb. That's that's what it seems to be, I think, indicating to me anyway, that this seal had a had a specific symbol and image. So sealing on their foreheads with a name. That already gets us, what, what on earth is that? What is that supposed to mean uh, to us? So we, we need to keep looking at where else does this idea come up with the name being on someone's forehead or having the name, just having the name of somebody else on you. Do we, do we have any other example of something like that, either in this book or in the Bible? And we do. We do have something like that in this book, very interestingly enough. So, and guess where we find it? In the letter to the churches, we do have the churches being, some of the churches being promised to get a new name, the name of God. So let's jump over there to uh, chapter three. We do have we do have a hint here that I think just contributes to the idea that the, the group that we're looking at, 144,000, they are representing the people of God, the church, the servants of God, the witnesses of Jesus, the gospel speakers or proclaimers. This is who they are. And here's, here's I think, another sign that that's, that that's correct. So verse 12, to the church in, of all people, Philadelphia, they're named here. So the one who conquers, and what we described was this conquering was them being faithful to God, obeying, being a church, being a light, you know, proclaiming the gospel. So if you conquer, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from heaven and my own new name. So there's, there's more here, but you do have the name of God on there, you do have the name of because um, there's two names, right? There is the name of this, the name of my God, the name of the city of my God, and then the new name, and that's Jesus speaking. So you have the name of Jesus, the name of the Lamb, and the name of God on here. That's that's another hint to me that this this group that's described in Revelation seven and fourteen, they are the people of God, and that's 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 it means it's it's God's. They belong to Him. They look like Him. They follow, and then. Chapter 14 says they follow him wherever he goes. They look just like him. They act just like him. They are part of his army. Um, so we were, we were there, right? So chapter 14, chapter 3. Look at the very end of, the, of Revelation also. Chapter 22. The people who are in the city of God, the people who are his people, who participate with him, they are described in chapter 22. 
with this similar language. I'll wait for you guys to get there, 22, and we will just read this whole little thing so that you can see it. Because we just read the letter of Philadelphia. If they conquer, they will be part of the city. They'll have the name of God on them and all that stuff. Look at this description of the city of God. Verse uh, 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. And on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And no longer will anything be accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Again, the servants are the people of God, but keep going. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no night, light of sun or lamp, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. So in the eternal state, the people of God have his name on their foreheads also. It's, it's just this repeated theme. The sealing on the foreheads means ownership of God over them. He's theirs. He protects them. He takes care of them. They're his people. They belong to him. They follow him. They wear white robes. Actually, no, that's the multitude. But all that to say, in answer to who are these people, I think they are the ones who belong to the Lamb. The church is described that way. The people of God are described that way. So I don't think it's meaning to say there's just a limited number. It's more to say it's God knows each single one. They've all been selected by him. He's aware of every single one. And so that, the 144,000 with 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, 12,000, that's just meant to say all of them, right? I think that's the point of having that. And they're very specific. He knows how many there's going to be, right? Because he says, it, this isn't going to be over until it's time. And the time is over when the last one has died that I've decided will die that way. That's, that's the declaration of this, this vision. So there you have a very specific number with some interesting themes, right? They're seal on the forehead. In addition to that, right, this is where I'm starting to pile on symbols on top of it. I'm not, but John is. This is where the book gets, it starts getting overwhelming and we start drowning under it. If you aren't drowning already, I'm going to dump a bucket of water on you while you're grasping for air. So in the book of Revelation, we have, a, I put here, lamb versus dragon, because in this middle section of all these visions, we also have happening at the same time, and it's not easy to notice, but if you, if you were to just write out things and you see them, it's just not coincidental. So on the lamb side, we do have the father up on the throne with the lamb at his right-hand side, right? Chapters 4 and 5, we see that description. And the one at his right-hand side is this slain lamb, right? He's, he just shows up at the book in various chapters over and over again, and but he starts off as this slain, the one who was killed and who comes to life and now is reigning, who received the book and he's opening up the seals. And the ones who follow him are this 144,000 and they're sealed on their foreheads. They represent the people of God. And as we get towards the end of the book, we read in chapter 22 that there is a city of God, this beautiful, that's, that's the imagery in chapters 21 and 22 of God's city coming down, which is the bride of God. It's, it's his beautiful woman. So just keep that in mind that we have these images on the good side. We have uh, the father, the slain lamb, the sealed followers who are the city of God, who represent where, God's dwell, where God dwells, and they're also called his, his bride, his wife, a woman. We also have, in, in the, other, in this, the dark side of the book, we have the alternative, right? We have the dragon portrayed in chapter 12 as the one who opposes himself to God. And so on, on his like throne room, you have the dragon who's the big guy in charge, and he empowers the beasts that work for him. And one of the beasts looks like he's dead. He's slain with a mortal wound. We're gonna, if you want to go to chapter 13, go ahead and open it up because we'll get there in a second. But I want you to see the big picture first. In chapter 13, he's portrayed as, it looks like he's dead, ah, but then he comes back to life. And because of that, everybody worships him. It's, 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 it's just like this one. You have, the, you have this parallel. You have a, a slain lamb who's the real thing, who really died and came to life. This one looks like, it says, appeared to have a mortal wound and then comes to life. It, it's like he's faking it, right? He's trying to pretend. So the, the dragon is setting up his fake trinity on the other side. And then the earth dwellers, which are the ones who are deceived by the slain beast, they also get sealed on their foreheads. It was the mark of the beast. Have you heard that phrase? The mark of the beast, they get a mark, and where is it? It happens to be on their forehead or on their right, their right hand. That's how it's described. And it also 
parallels with the sealed people of God. You see how there's like one version on the other side? And there's also a great city described in this section of the book. The great city Babylon, who happens to be a prostitute. So you have a city who is also called a woman. And you, and you have both of these side by side. The good versus the bad. Kind of. That's not coincidental. This is, this is like, it's, it's artistic, but it's, it's also showing us that there's more, there's more there behind the scenes than just, there's not some big woman in the sky, and there's not some big whore in the sky either. It's describing something about the nature of the people of God versus those who are being deceived by the beast. He's using similar techniques to fool them. And there's a big warning in chapter 13 to the church. Pay attention. Discern the beast. Right? When he says discern the number, which is the mark of the beast, I'm getting ahead of myself, but what I think he's saying is pay attention to what's happening around you. Right? That's the message to the church is wake up. If you have an ear, then listen to me. There is much going on around you and you've got to overcome. You've got, you're in a battle with, with the dragon. So who's fighting the dragon? It's the lamb and his followers. The, and the message is, I think, very much to you and me today, the church, that, that's where we're at. Take, take note of the seriousness of the moment and of the battle that you're in and who's leading you and what's, what's your end going to be? What's, what's the victory going to be? It's going to be the lambs. That's what we're going to see. The lamb and the bride are going to beat out the great city and the harlot, Babylon, at the end. So we're on the victorious side, but we're, the book describes this struggle between the two. So it's discern the, method, the methods. Pay attention to what's happening. Okay, your turn, Mark. Yeah, um, so that's symbolic. But would, are you also saying that the mark of the beast that they talked about, taking on the mark of the beast, those who do, you know, is that symbolic or is it a real thing? I'm saying something weird. I'm suggesting that if the mark of the 144,000 is, uh, is an image from Ezekiel 9 and 10, right, where God says, seal on the forehead those who are mine, that was a symbolic action. That wasn't a literal seal when we read Ezekiel 9 and 10. I think that's where the imagery is coming from for John. He's using a lot of imagery from Ezekiel. And so, yeah, I, I do think John is using a, an image of sealing on the forehead that was symbolic in nature from, from the very beginning, right? An Old Testament imagery. So I, I think it's just following the same line of thought. Just like the people of God are sealed by him, they belong to God. No one can touch them. He knows every single one of them, and they're protected by him. And it's because they've given their lives to him, so he offers that in return. The seal of the beast, the mark of the beast, is almost the same thing. They've, they've been deceived by him, and they've surrendered themselves to him. And they're kind of like, they're under his control. And so there's, a, there's like one example in the, in, the, in the book of Ephesians where Paul is warning, he's warning specifically the women, but in general he's warning how, how to use your tongue. Be careful lest you become diabolical or you you give the devil an opportunity to work in your midst like you're you surrender yourself over to his schemes and his methods and uh, there so there are hints that that this is what's happening behind the scenes in the church's life is that there are these schemes and when you uh when you participate in them it's almost like you're beginning to act like someone who is being controlled by right they're owned by the dragon through the beast who's exercising his thing, his, his will. So when we get to chapters 13, which is where the mark of the beast occurs, I think we will have enough in place in the book that when you get there, you'll realize that if there is a physical mark that represents this, that, that could be the case. But behind that, the mark represents ownership and control. So the, the followers of the lamb, they're owned by the lamb, and they follow him wherever he goes. And the mark talks about the character my character is, is being dictated by the lamb i have his name on me now represent him similarly the earth dwellers they reject god and they begin to look like the dragon talk like the dragon and behave like the dragon and that's what the mark is it's it's a representation of who's who's influencing them who's controlling them you know who's guiding and directing them it's the external mark i, I think might be something but the book calls the church to identify the mark to be, a, to be not influenced by what's happening behind them. Because in chapters 2 and 3, they are succumbing to the schemes. Five out of the seven churches are just in la-la land. They're getting drunk with the wine that the great harlot is offering. 
So they are basically God saying, You're, you are playing with fire, right? You're acting as if you don't have my mark on you. And that's a dangerous place to be. So, so to answer the question, I do think predominantly the idea is this mark is not a physical mark, let alone a computer chip that gets put on people. It's more about control, ownership. That's happening right now, right? The seal, if we're reading it this way, the seal of God is on the people of God today, throughout time. The same thing with the dragon. The implication is his work is happening right now, and that seal is upon those who have been deceived by him. Concern out there, people about you know what is the mark of the beast, and what you know do I have to be concerned about what kind of you know as you said computer chip. Yeah. You know they they can be injected under the skin and all that, and nobody can see it, but you have it and you can buy and sell I know someone here had their hand raised or something. What, was it you? But we'll get to that in a second. But just to illustrate your point further, the description there in 13 is, I said we were going to read it. We will read it. I asked you together. We'll, we'll read it in a second. But the description there is if they don't have the mark, they can't buy or whatever in the marketplace. That was the challenge of the church under the Roman Empire, which is you couldn't participate in the marketplace if you didn't come and pay homage to the Son of God, who is Caesar. So if you didn't offer your sacrifices to the Roman gods, the pantheon, and participate with them there and acknowledge their existence, then you couldn't buy and sell or trade. You were affected financially if you didn't engage in the worship of the pagan deities of the day. So that was happening in the first century. That was the challenge of the church is, what do we do? Do we just pretend so that we can you know, not lose our livelihood? And Paul was trying to issue them a, ch a challenge, even in First Corinthians. Like you can't, you can't pretend. You can't, you can't let them think that you, that that you believe that way. That's okay. That would be misleading them, and that would be a lie. So the whole question of food sacrifice to idols. You know, it's interesting. Paul's Paul's response there to them is, if uh, if they invite you over and they're eating meat that they sacrifice to gods, but but they know that you don't know that you did that, then you can eat the meat. But if you do that. And they know, and they know that they think that they've told you about the meat being sacrificed to idols. Then you eating the meat is telling them that you agree with their God. It says that you should not eat meat then, yeah. right? Because then you're participating. So the church was already facing those challenges from the first century onward. Right? How do we discern the work of the enemy, and how do we proclaim and be a light right now? And sometimes it will mean a loss of financial resources. Sometimes it'll be loss of social status, and sometimes it will be death. Right? And that has, that's the same thing today. That has not changed. The challenge to be a follower of the Lamb today, there's going to be some sort of loss socially right, in the socially acceptable universe that's out there. So it, the thing still runs, runs true. I, I feel like that the mark of the beast is much more appropriate today and in the past than it is to some future time period where... I don't want to get into those scenarios. When we get to 13 in detail, we'll, we'll see how this plays out much better. It was almost like the shot. You didn't take the shot. Couldn't, a lot of places you couldn't work. Yeah, it, that can manifest itself in different ways today where, where, you, where you see that. But this is more of a spiritual nature right, of your moral, of your character, of your integrity. So I feel like there was someone over here who wanted to say something before you, Carol. Am I, am I right or wrong? Or do we? Okay, well then, Carol. Yeah, I was going to say when you said the seal of God is for today, and so it's those people who are serving God, and they're they're following Him, they're they're modeling Him, and so that is for today. You could look and say, you know, these are people that are, have a seal of God, and the seal, of the dragon, is those who do surrender to Satan. Yes. Yeah, so it, it, so it, yeah. I told you to go to thirteen, and so you're still there on the same page. But verse, but chapter fourteen, where it describes the hundred and forty-four thousand, verse four says, it is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. So just, they haven't soiled themselves. They haven't dirtied themselves. In the letter to the churches, one of the churches, God says to them, like, okay, there's a group of you doing bad, but there's a group among you like, remaining faithful to me. They haven't soiled their garments. And the idea was they haven't compromised. And that's so the, the, the clothes represented your commitment, your following of the Lamb. You washed yourself in the blood of the Lamb. And then those who were playing around, they were getting their clothes all dirty. So that ties into this theme. But then it says, it is these, the 144,000, these follow the Lamb wherever He goes. I love that 
that phrase. They, they obey him. They just do what he says. They, they act just like him. Wherever he goes, they go. That's, that's again hinting at what you just said, Carol. So those who are sealed, those who have his name on their foreheads, those follow the lamb. They look like the lamb. They act like the lamb. They might be slain for their obedience, just like the lamb was slain for his obedience. That's the church. That's the followers of Jesus. That's those who share the gospel, those who are bringing the light. Those are the witnesses of Jesus, the servants of God. The images just pile on. Yeah, Joe. One of the things that ties in with that, when you look where Jesus was confronted by one of the religious groups, should we pay taxes to Caesar? It wasn't even a coin. Whose image was stamped on that? Mm -hmm. Caesar's. Well, that belongs to him. Inadvertently, he was saying the image that belongs to God Yeah, I was. It's a very subtle. Yeah. Well, but that. But, but they got it. We we can and we can get it too if we just you know if you just keep that in your mind when you're reminded of these things. This idea of sealing and image and ownership. I feel like the the more you see the theme show up, it's it's not a, necessarily talking about the literal mark, right? The the more important meaning is the what you just said is who do you belong to? Who's who owns you? Yeah. And that's the other big one. The rest of the New Testament, the seal of God is the Holy Spirit in people. Right. It's not necessarily, I don't see anything on your foreheads. And there's no like church goggles that we put on. Now I can see the seal with the 3D church goggles. That, that's not that. It's the Holy Spirit's abiding in us and us submitting to him. That would be the seal. Much the same way that the dragon in power, let's just read it. I've been talking about it. He gives power to the beast and the image and then he goes and he seals them. It's, it's, it's the evil side, right? It's the, this parallel. So, um, we, let's just read the first part of the chapter because there's no way to just cut this up to make it quicker. And don't worry about, again, we're not here yet, so don't worry about understanding everything. Just, it's just the themes that I've highlighted. Try to, try to remember that. So, here goes John. I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, and it had ten horns, seven heads, and ten diadems on its horns, and blasphemous names on its heads. That's gross. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Uh, its feet were like bear, and its mouth was like a lion. So it's a mutant, ugly creature. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and his authority, just like the father gave his throne to the lamb, right? And he can exercise it. This is just the evil parallel. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. It seemed to have a mortal wound. And its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled. <gasps> wow! And followed the beast. And they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who can fight against it? The, even that phrase, just I just remembered this now. Even that phrase... Um, it, it sounds eerily similar to in chapter 15, the song of Moses, right? The song of the Lamb. Just jump to 15 real quick. Just hold your paper there in verse 3. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, the son of the, Lamb, the song of the Lamb. Great, amazing are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear the Lord and give glory to your name? Right? They respond to God's mighty acts and they're like, who won't fear and honor this one? And then you get to the uh, evil trinity, and it's like, oh, who is like the beast? Get out of here. So, to the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. This is verse 5. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Again, all these passive verbs hint back at who's really in charge. It's the lamb. The lamb authorizes the dragon and the beast to function. Right? That's the, that's the crazy thing about this. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his willing, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer the saints. Right? It was allowed to do that. They're, they're at battle. That's part of the meaning of this whole book. 
is John saying to the church, you're in a battle because God has granted it to the beast. That's why there is a battle. It's not because he lost the battle. It's not because Jesus left us here and we're abandoned and we have to fight for him or else he's going to lose. No, the battle is actually the sign that Christ won because he just said, I'm in control. No one dies without my authority. I give the dragon power. I let him do this for a limited amount of time. But you, church, you worry about being a light, right? And you discern and be careful. Anyways, uh, so jump down to verse 11. Here is another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its place and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast, whose mortal wound was healed. So they're worshiping the fake Jesus, right? The, the fake second person of, the, of their evil trinity. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven and earth in front of people. What does that remind you of? We studied this story. Fire from heaven. Ezekiel is, yeah, but we, we studied in Sunday school, uh, Sunday school, in Sunday at service, a story about fire from heaven. It's, yeah, that's the big one of the Old Testament, the Mount Carmel, the judgment coming down. But in that one, Yahweh sent fire down, right? And the Baal didn't work. But in this case, God grants here evil, the ability to deceive and look just like him almost, to do things that only God does, which is to bring fire from heaven. That's what the dragon is doing. And by the signs that it is allowed, again, it's allowed to do it. God allows it. In the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, the earth dwellers, telling them to make an image for the beast that it was wounded by the sword and yet lived. It was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might call, cause those who did not worship the image of the beast to be slain. That's how it's doing its war. If you don't recognize the beast, it's going to come after you. It also causes all, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Then, then it calls for wisdom and gives you a number. And like I said, we'll get, we'll, when we get to that, we'll get there. But that, that's just to show you the contrast to the 144,000 who are sealed. Those who belong to the Lamb who goes wherever he goes. Those who participate and submit themselves to Jesus. We... I feel like we, we, I intended to go us to talk about the multitude because that's where we wanted, that's where we were going last time. But we're, we are, hopefully this exercise was intriguing that the 144,000, they're much more than just a number. They are the people of God. And in the book, they parallel those who are fooled by the enemy. So they are, I, I think they're referencing us. And so let's, let's read a little bit here of the second part of chapter 7 that describe the people of God in, in a slightly different way, which is this group is not limited to just 144,000. They are a large multitude. And the idea of them being an uncountable multitude, again, I don't think that's meant to be. There are so many people that are going to be part of the kingdom of God that not even God can count them. That's not the idea, right? An uncountable. God, God has to be able to count. Those that are not there. Yeah, if, if he knows every hair, every grain of sand, and I just watched a video from the, uh, the device that we sent to Mars taking pictures of the planet surface and these specks of sand and rocks there that no human eye has seen you know, for thousands of years, except for us now, we can see rocks, we can see pebbles of sand on Mars, and just think, God has all of those like, counted and numbered, N none of the stars, right? And it, so to say here that there are so many humans there's not even more humans than stars, and God knows all the stars. So this doesn't really make literal sense, that there's an uncountable multitude. That wouldn't make sense, right? But the idea is that there's another group that's also called, like, almost like an uncountable multitude. And I'm, I'm going to just ask you to guess. In the Bible, in the Bible story as a whole, is there another figure who is described as having so many kids that they're like the stars, like the sand on the sea shore, that they have so many children. It's going to be enormous. Yes, the people of God, Abraham, the people God created. I, that, I think that's the point. This is the fulfillment of Abraham's promise, the seed of Abraham, the people of God. And it's those who, it's, it's those who participate in the Lamb, the promised blessing of God. It's, that's Galatians chapter 4. The true seed of Abraham are found in Christ. He makes them an, an, this enormous multitude that's not just bound to one bloodline. It's, it's all who are part of the Lamb, all who follow him and obey him. I think that's the... That's the point of this great multitude. And 
here they are. They are from every nation, tribe, and people, and languages. They stand before the throne and before the Lamb, and they're clothed in white robes. Again, that's what the church is given for those who obey. They wash their clothes, and they're white. It's, it, I think it's just describing the same people that are 144,000 in the church inside of this book. They have palm branches in their hands, and they're crying out, Oh, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These are the people who recognize the true ruler and savior of the world. They're not deceived by the beast. They're not deceived by the dragon. They refuse his mark. They remain faithful, and they might even die for that. These are the ones who recognize the lamb for who he is. And then all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God. And they are like, amen, I agree. Blessing and honor and glory, wisdom, thanksgiving, all this stuff belong to our God. Who are these? said one of the elders in verse 13, that are clothed in white robes, where have they come from? Where have they come from? And John says, well, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation, the great trial, the great testing, the great refining. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. In other words, they remained faithful. They stayed with the Lamb. And therefore they are before the throne. They serve him night and day in his temple he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They will hunger no more, thirst no more. The sun isn't going to strike them with any scorching heat. The lamb is in the middle of the throne, will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So it's just this note of hope to the people, right? There's all this chaos happening. There's judgment. Every, the stars are falling from the sky. It, it seems like God's not in control, and these visions remind the people of God you are secure. God has protected you. His wrath isn't coming upon you while you're on the earth. He, he knows who you are and where you are. And there's a lot of you. You are part of a great multitude. You're not alone. Right? Some of these churches might have felt they were isolated in where they were. <clears throat> and we might even feel that way today where you, sometimes you feel like the church in our world, so much of them have abandoned what we think is true. Right? We, watch, we watch apostasy left and right, and we're trying to maintain the course, and you can feel like, oh, there's only a few of us that are remaining true and faithful. Maybe in our town, maybe in this city, but across the world, there is a large group of faithful followers of Jesus across denominations, across languages and tongues, and throughout history that we are a part of, and we need to, we need to remember that in, in the moment. It's, it's not chaotic. We're not about to fall off a cliff if we remain, if we keep following the Lamb. Yeah, Joe. Yeah, there's something in Isaiah 23, and I'm not sure time frame or anything like that shows God's character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Read it for us. 23:17 says, "At the end of 70 years, the Lord will deal with fire. She will return to her fire as a prostitute, and will ply her trade with all the kingdoms on the face of the earth. Yes, her profit." And her earnings will be set apart for the Lord. They will not be stored up or hoarded. Her profits will go to those who live before the Lord for abundant food and fine clothing. So it sounds like there's going to be or there has been something catastrophic economically. And Tyre is going to go back to churning out money. And God says, yeah, everything they make goes to my people who fear me. Or abundant food and fine clothes. So it's, it seems to say God can take care of his people. Yes. Even in the midst of total chaos. We have a, if you're not familiar with where Tyre is, let me just, uh, this uh, Dead Sea, Good Valley could be bigger or whatever. Uh, then the it's like a river. I believe it's either the Tigris or it's the Euphrates. They they branch off here and they come to the coastline. This is the the Mediterranean Sea. Follow me so far. Egypt we'll put over here. So the big empire was Babylon. It was over here somewhere. And the way that they did international trade and commerce was by following the waterline to Tyre and Sidon up top. This was the port, seaport, where everything went everywhere. International trade, this is where all the business happened. They were, Babylon was really far away. They exercised all the power and authority, but their trade center 
was up in Tyre and Sidon. So Ezekiel 28 is a, is a tirade against that whole city in specific. We have a little glimpse in Isaiah of that. And so she was the trade port. All this commerce came out of her. This is this little area right here. This is, this is where Phoenicia was. This is where like languages were being set and being like the Phoenician dialect was this is this is where we get our modern language from. Like all this cool stuff was coming out of here, culture or whatever. That's where Jezebel came out of. Her father her father being the great high priest of it was just completely pagan nonsense. But they had a they had a overestimated impact on the rest of the ancient world because of they were the center of trade and commerce for so many. For Egypt, trading with Babylon. It just that's where everything was. And there was an empire to the north too. They were like a nice centerpiece. And so they became known for that. And God said, not even you I'm going to let loose, right? You, you are this nasty whore of the world where you, you let all their pagan ideas come in so that you can use their trade and their money. And they, it was a super rich town. So you're compromising for the sake. And so she gets judged when Babylon gets judged. And then God, what you're saying is that even that person, God says, I can use them for myself. Not, they don't do anything on their own. Even, so for them, it would have been like even tired. For us to be, I don't know, you want to put New York City as like a, a financial hub for America, even your, New York City or even Los Angeles, these major cities that have all this, we would call garbage being spewed out of them. Like even what they're doing, God says, I, I use all that for me. I can use everything that they're doing. I can judge them. I can use their, their wealth and their resources. No, nothing goes beyond my reach. The people of God are secure. I will take care of you. So that was, that, that's exactly right. That was a, a you can... So you guys can note down Isaiah 23, and you can read Ezekiel 28 on that too. That will be another chapter that deals with Tyre. But it's the same theme we see in the rest of the Bible. It's happening in Revelation. All right, we, we I'm sorry, we got to go. Kept this longer than what we uh, normally try to do. So, well, we'll summarize the multitude next time, but we'll move on to uh, the trumpets. We'll start blowing some trumpets in here and see what happens.